At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. All right, this morning, if you have a Bible or electronic device, I want to encourage you to take it out and turn with me to the book of John, to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John chapter 8 this morning, and we're going to begin in verse 2. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're, you're driving down the freeway or the interstate, and you just, you're going along, and you're having a good time, and you your mind starts to wander and you don't realize that as your mind is wandering, your foot is pressing a little bit harder on the accelerator and uh, you, you kind of look up just a second and, and for a moment you, you see a police officer in the median and you blow by that police officer and immediately your eyes go from the police officer to your speedometer and you're like, oh no. Like you're going 20 miles over the speed limit and in that moment your heart sinks you begin to sweat and you're like, what? Oh my goodness, I'm, oh, oh. You start hyperventilating and you keep looking back in your rear view mirror and you're like, oh, I know I did it. I, I was speeding, I, I'm, I'm guilty. I know that I'm gonna get a ticket. I'm worthy of getting the ticket. And for the next 10 to 15 seconds of your life, you're like in complete panic. Anyone ever done that? I see those heads, amen, yeah. Some of you, uh, you do it on purpose. Some of you do it by accident. You know, God's got grace for all of us. But we've been there, right? You know that in that moment you have been caught and you know that you are worthy of a ticket. You're worthy of being pulled over and allowing the whole world to see your, your sin and your shame as cars go blowing by because you've been pulled over and you're like, oh my goodness, I just, I just I can't do it. And you look up and 15 seconds later, you look back again and the cop has not turned on his lights. The cop has not moved. And how do you feel? <sighs> Right? For one moment, all is well with the world, right? You're like, oh my goodness, did I just dodge that bullet? And you're like, okay, I've learned my lesson. So you move over from the fast lane to the middle lane or to the slow lane. You put that cruise control on and you are going like you're supposed to, right? All is right in the world. And so you continue on driving down the road for a few more minutes and you're doing the speed limit. And then guess what happens? Someone blows by you going 20 miles over the speed limit. How do you respond? You're like, where's a cop when you need one? <laughs> right, that guy, should, I hope that guy gets pulled over. I hope he gets what he deserves. Right, that's how we feel. And then it gets better, it gets better. You're driving down the road maybe like a mile or two later and guess what, you see that guy pulled over. And you're like, justice is served. Right, I, that guy got what he does. I'm so happy. Thank you, police officer, for keeping us safe and all this because there are crazy people out on the road and they get what they deserve and I love it, right? Now, I, I know that's a real life experience. How many of you have actually been there before? Okay, thank you for being honest this morning. You see, the truth is, it's interesting how we naturally want 
mercy and forgiveness for ourselves. But yet, we want swift justice for anyone that harms us. Isn't that true? We, we always, we, we know we mess up. We all know that we walk in the ways and we're constantly making mistakes. And when we make mistakes, we want grace and we want mercy. But when someone comes against us and harms us or does bad to us, how do we respond to that? We want them to get what they deserve, right? And it's this tension that we ourselves navigate unfairly every single day. You and I are not just. You and I are not good. You and I are not fair. But the only person that can perfectly balance forgiveness and justice is Jesus. He's the only one. He's the only one that perfectly perfectly balances justice and forgiveness completely. You know, over the past few weeks, we've been working through a series that we've entitled The Essentials, Why Truth Matters. We've been going back to um, looking at the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. To be a Christian, in essence, is to believe this set of beliefs. And we've been using the Apostles' Creed as the statement to which all of our, our, the foundations of our belief are identified. And so we've been walking through this. And today we're looking at the statement, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. So that's what we want to talk about this morning. The, the need for the forgiveness of sins and what that looks like and how God, through Christ, has afforded us that. You see, having our sins forgiven is the foundational need of everyone. In our text today, we're going to see Jesus perfectly balance justice and mercy without promoting sin or condemning sinners. Jesus is the only one that's able to perfectly look at this. And so today, as we look at this passage, what we're going to see is that Jesus forgives sins. Jesus forgives sins. Now, if you go to John chapter 8, before we dive into this text, I do need to, to take a look at um, just how this passage fits into Scripture. If you look at chapter 8, maybe right before chapter 8, you may have an asterisk before that, or you may have some sort of special bracketed notation. Mine says the earliest manuscripts do not include uh, John chapter 7, 53 through 8, 11. Now, I, I wanted to address this without getting into um, deep textual criticism of, of Bible translations. Um, there, there, sometimes people come to passages like this and they're like, well, you shouldn't preach this because this isn't inerrant. This isn't in the word of God. And I just want to, to, to pause for a moment and give you just a brief biblical textual criticism lesson so we can know how this passage fits into scripture and how, we can, how we're going to use it today. So in, in essence, in textual biblical criticism... A lot of times the, um, the effectiveness or the authenticity of a passage would be uh, verified by the earlier manuscripts, by the amount of earlier manuscripts having a specific passage within it. Now, John chapter 8 or John chapter 7 verses 53 through 8 and 11 were not contained in the majority of the early manuscripts. Okay, so the, the ones that were closest written to, to John. Now, a manuscript, again, is a copy of the original. So John actually wrote John, and then as that letter or his book was um, transmitted, it was copied. 
And so we have manuscripts of them. So some of the early manuscripts of this passage did not include this specific passage. Although it wasn't in the majority of the early manuscripts, we know that many, almost all biblical scholars believe that this account is authentic, that it actually happened, that it actually took place. Right? It might not have taken place in exactly in between chapter 7 and, and chapter 8, but um, there are literally no biblical scholars that say this isn't authentic. Third, we see that this account reads like Jesus. Right? The way we're going to see Jesus walking and interacting with the religious leaders and with sinners, what we're going to see is this is in step with Jesus' conduct in other places of Scripture. Then we're also going to see that the theology of this passage is really the story of the entire New Testament. The whole New Testament is found on this idea that Jesus forgives sinners. And so the theology of this passage is okay. It seems like Jesus. And so we're going to get a glimpse into this passage and see how Jesus navigates in the world as he cares for sinners and see how he forgives sins. Now, when we come to the, um, the Apostles' Creed, and we see that I believe in the forgiveness of sins, I want us to understand that this plural of sins, this word sins, is not only the talking about the fact that there are a number of sins, like you and I have sinned a lot, and so we have lots of sins in our lives, right? So some of us have different varying degrees or the amounts of sins, but we all have sinned, plural. So not only does Jesus forgive the number of our sins, but he also forgives the forms of our sins. So there's the plural of sins there is not only the number, but the forms. And if we look at the word sin as it's described throughout scripture, we see that there are different names that are given to the types of sin that we sin. So first of all, scripture talks about the word sin. Sin, in essence, simply means to fall short of the mark. So God, because he's creator of all things, has set the standard. And his standard is holiness and his standard is perfection. And you and I, to sin means to miss that mark. Meaning that you and I don't measure up to God's standard of holiness. So that's one level of sin. And we know that everyone in the world is guilty of missing God's standard. Now we go on to scripture. It also talks about a word called transgression. Now, this is a type of sin that not only misses the mark, but this is the type of sin that describes someone that knows the standards of God, someone that knows the laws of God, and willfully and intentionally trespasses or crosses the line to disobey. Like, this is the one that knows that God says, do not touch, and you go ahead and you touch it, right? So you trespassed, you know the standard, and you've trespassed and you've touched it, okay? So there's a little bit more of intent there. There's a little more deviousness there. There's a little more rebellion there. The third type of sin that Scripture talks about is the word iniquity. Now this word is more deeply rooted because iniquity is a sin that is a premeditated choice to walk in sin without repentance. So this is almost worse than just a trespass for to trespass is to know the standards and then willfully disobey it. To transgress is to in your heart know the standard and premeditate 
the sense that you want to know the standard and you want to willfully disobey and you want to walk in iniquity where there is no repentance. You know you're going the wrong way. You know you're doing the wrong thing and you just don't care. So Jesus, what we're going to see today is that Jesus forgives our sins. Not only the amount of our sins, but the different forms of our sins. And you and I are guilty of sinning against God. And so today, as we look at this passage, I want us to see what it looks like for our sins to be forgiven. We're going to see three truths in this passage as we walk through the scenarios. We see how Jesus interacts with the woman who has been caught in adultery. Look with me in verse 2 of chapter 8. It says, early in the morning, he, meaning Jesus, came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to sown such a woman, so what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his fingers, finger on the ground. The first truth I want us to see is Jesus forgives sins. Is I want us to see that forgiveness requires an awareness of guilt. Before forgiveness can be extended or received, there must be an awareness of guilt. Now, as we look at this passage, we see Jesus has has um, come into Jerusalem. Jesus is teaching at the temple. And this temple, the setting of this is significant because the temple is where the Sanhedrin met. The Sanhedrin was, in in fact, the the supreme court of Israel. It was the place where uh, people would come and where judgment would be given. So they would would judge sin and they would um, oversee the law and they would judge in all matters of law and righteousness. So in essence, the passage today is a courtroom. So we're in a courtroom setting. Jesus has come into the courtroom. Jesus has been teaching about the law and be teaching about the kingdom of God. And now these religious leaders have been looking for a way to accuse Jesus. So they use this setting on this day. They show up in force and they they push themselves past the crowd to confront Jesus. They bring before Jesus a woman who has been caught in the act of a terrible sin. If she's a Jewish woman, then she's been caught in the act of a transgression. Like the worst type of sin she has done. And now they're bringing before Jesus this woman. And they're asking that Jesus make a judgment based on the law. They think that they've pinned Jesus in the corner. Because however he responds will bring accusations on Jesus. For according to the law of Moses, the the punishment for committing such a sin was the stoning of both individuals that were involved in this terrible act. And so according to the law, this woman deserves to be stoned. She deserves to have all of those people there stand before her, picking up stones and thrusting them at her until she dies. That's what she deserves according to the law. And if Jesus agrees to stone the woman, he would incur the distrust of all the sinners that have been looking to Jesus in hopes for salvation. If Jesus 
punishes the sinner, then that's going to make him look bad because Jesus came to save sinners. And how if Jesus condemns a sinner, then is there any hope for anyone else? So Jesus is in one sense, doesn't want to do that, but also we understand that Jesus doesn't, can't break Roman law. It, it was unlawful for the actual Jews to participate in this type of judgment under Roman law. And so these religious leaders think they've painted Jesus into a corner because Jesus can't violate the law of Moses. Jesus can't violate the law of Rome, but yet Jesus also can't let sinners go unpunished. And so these religious leaders come wanting to seek justice, but they want to seek justice according to their own standards. And they go to great lengths to, put, to set Jesus up at this point. This whole scenario is a damaging ex exercise of entrapment. This woman was set up. This woman was not cared for. This, no one cared for this woman and who she was as a child of God, as a person being made in the image of God. Instead, these men that surrounded her used this woman in a very damaging way. You see, according to rabbinical law, two or three witnesses needed to witness the act of sin before a sentence could be enforced. In this case, one of the witnesses would have been the, the man that was committing adultery with the woman. So that would be one witness. And it's interesting that in this case, this man is not being accused. This man's going off scot-free. This man is in the crowd. He has to be in the crowd because he has to be one of the accusers. So the man that was committing adultery was there. But there also needed to be one or two other witnesses. That means there were others that were in this room, in this setting, witnessing the act so that they could be there. Instead of stepping in and saying, hey, this is wrong, you shouldn't do that. Instead, they're on the sidelines cheering as this sin is being committed. And these witnesses are also there in the crowd. Why is it that the woman is the only one being charged? You see, in our world, we are unfair. In our world, we will use whoever we can use to justify ourselves. That's how devious you and I really are. And we see the deviousness of sin in this place. The scribes and the Pharisees bring the sin of the woman out into the open and they put her on public trial. They're shaming this woman and asking Jesus to judge her. And look how Jesus responds. Instead of responding like you and I would respond, how does God respond? God in the person of Christ says Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. This should cause us to pause and say, what in the world is Jesus doing? Some biblical scholars, the scripture doesn't tell us what he's doing writing on the ground, but some biblical scholars believe 
that the Bible tells us that the law was written with the finger of God. This is what Exodus 31, 18 says. The law was written with the finger of God. And that made the law doubly sacred because God himself actually wrote the law. Remember that? Right? He, he wrote the law and gave it to Moses with his finger. And some biblical scholars believe that Jesus is bending down, writing with his finger when the law is being debated. Because that's what's on trial here, right? Is the law. What is, how, do, how do we live and how do we make um, judgments based on the law? And so Jesus is bending down as they're debating the law. Jesus is the only one that actually knows how to truly apply the law. Why? Because Jesus is God. And with his finger on the ground, he is showing the opportunity. In a moment, he's going to show the extravagant extent of his grace and his forgiveness. But he actually is the only one in this whole entire setting that has the true ability to judge. Why? Because he's the word. He's the law. He's the one. Come from God to earth in his perfection, in his deity, in his humanity. He's the only one that's able to actually decide and make a judgment call on the law. But before we see Jesus extend forgiveness, which Jesus does, there needs to be an awareness of guilt. There has to be an awareness of guilt. The woman was guilty. She does not, before this crowd and before Jesus, she doesn't deny her guilt. She doesn't say, no, 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 I wasn't there. It wasn't me, it was someone else. She wasn't doing that. She understands in that moment she was guilty. She doesn't challenge the accusations, but she knows that she was in fact guilty. She knows in fact that she was a violator of the law and she also feels guilt because now her sin is exposed. But not only was her sin exposed to the people of her community, but her sin was exposed to Jesus. Her guilt was on her face and she could not avoid it. And in that moment, she was guilty and in desperate need of forgiveness. Put yourself in those women's shoes just for a moment. It would be like me calling you up on stage this morning. And, and behind you would be a, a reel of all of the sins of your life. There's no place to hide. There's no place to go. You've been caught. You've been found out. And guilt. You feel guilty. You might even feel shame. You might even want to just like crawl under a rock. For your whole life, you've tried to continue to put up a facade of okayness, right? You can continue to put up a wall and you're like, I'm only going to allow people to see this side of me. I'm not going to allow them to see my evil heart. I'm not going to allow them to see my evil thoughts. I'm not going to allow them to see my sinful acts that I do in disobedience and darkness. I'm not, I'm not letting the world see that. But what if for a moment that facade came down and the world could really see you for who you really are? How many of you are like, yeah, I can't wait for that. No, that, that terrifies you, right? That's what motivates us most of our days is because we don't want to be known as a fraud. We don't want people really to know what's in our minds. We don't want them to know what's in our hearts. We don't want them to know what we do in darkness. But I want you to know, you may be able to fool the world, but guess what? Jesus is already there. He 
He already knows. Jesus knew what was taking place before that woman came to him. Jesus knows. And you can't hide it from him. And guilt is a gift from God. Don't ever forget that. Guilt is a gift from God because it's a reminder that you are not okay. It's a reminder that you need someone to intercede, that you need forgiveness. So bring on the guilt. I wish that our prayers would be, God, please help me feel the guilt of my life. Please help me to feel the conviction of my sin. Convict me, convict me, convict me so that I can bring it before him and receive forgiveness. Guilt shows us that we are disobedient. Guilt shows us that we are sinful. Guilt shows us that we are worthy of punishment. Guilt is designed to drive us to Jesus. Guilt is designed to drive you to the only one that can forgive you. Now there's this other thing that we feel in this world and it's called shame. Feeling of shame is a feeling of our worth. Right, and so when, not, not our guilt, like guilt is good, shame is bad. In the sense that shame causes us to want to hide and run away. Remember in the garden, after Adam and Eve sinned, what did it say? They felt a shame, so what did they do? They hid. They, they, didn't, they didn't do the sin, feel guilt of it, and run to Jesus and say, Jesus, or God, look what I did, look what we did, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry. No, no, instead what they did is they took it and they hid from the Lord, they, they covered their nakedness, and they're like, the Lord can't love us. And so they saw their sin as a um, damaging of their worth. And that is not where God wants us to feel. When we come to understand our guilt, when we come to understand that we have messed up, it should cause us to run to Jesus, not run from him. If you're here this morning and you know you're a sinner and you're running from Jesus, stop. Stop. Because what you're going to see in a moment is how Jesus tenderly and compassionately comes close to us in our sin. He's willing to give forgiveness. He's willing to wipe the slate clean. He's willing to give you a fresh start. And maybe you're here, you just need a reality check this morning. You, you may be able to hide your sin from people, but you can't hide your sin from God. Romans chapter three, verse 23 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's one thing all of you, you and I share in common. Guess what? We're all dirty, rotten sinners. We've all sinned against God. We've all violated God's commands. None of us are perfect. And so we can try to, do, to, to put up a facade, but I know you're a sinner. You can know that I'm a sinner. And we're all in need of a savior. So before forgiveness can be received, there must be an understanding of guilt. We must understand that we have violated God's laws and that's what we see in this moment through this woman. But the second truth, forgiveness removes all condemnation. Look at me in verse seven. And it says, they continue to ask him. He stood up and said to them, 
Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. As Jesus is in this scenario with every second that passes, as he hesitates to answer the question, the scribes and the Pharisees become more and more impatient. So they continue to press him and they continue to ask him to give them an answer. Their own motive was only coming because they wanted to condemn the woman. And in essence, they ultimately wanted to condemn Jesus. They wanted justice. They wanted to pass judgment on Jesus. And when Jesus finally speaks, he says this. Let him who is out sin among you be the first to throw a stone. What I love about what Jesus does here is Jesus is not abolishing the law but he's applying the law in a greater way. The only person present on that day that was without sin in that whole scenario was Jesus. He was the only one that could truly judge. And what he's doing here in this case is he's leveling the playing field. For Jesus knew and everyone in that crowd knew that they were all culpable for breaking the law. Everyone in that crowd knew that they were sinners, that they were guilty of breaking God's law. Jesus knew that in the crowd was the man that was guilty, that was there. Jesus knew in the crowd the witnesses that were there. Jesus also knew that the the group of guys that planned this whole thing, they were all there. No one was free from guilt. And even though they had sinned by putting this plot together, Everyone there, not only, even if they weren't guilty of being a part of the plot, every person there in the crowd on that day had past personal sins of their own. So Jesus puts the dilemma back on the accusers. In essence, Jesus says, before you pass judgment on this woman, do some self-evaluation. If you were without sin in your own personal life, then you have the right condemned. But if you are guilty, Like the woman, then you have no right to condemn. So Jesus, after speaking, because Jesus' words come with authority, everyone in the crowd looks down at the rock that they have in their hand and then takes the time to look inside of their own hearts and they're caused to make a decision. Do I have sin in my heart? Should this stone be thrust upon myself? And one by one, they look at themselves, they look at the stones, they drop the stones, and they walk away. Why? Because they're guilty. Everyone is guilty. No one is right before the sight of God. And so after some time, after these people acknowledge their sin and it says the older ones left first, maybe that's because in that moment they understood the amount of sin that they had and the amount of sin in their life was greater than maybe some of the younger ones. And so they drop their stones and they walk away. And after some time, Jesus stands up, he approaches the woman and finally delivers the verdict with a question. See, Jesus didn't look up at the crowd. Jesus stood up, walked to the woman, looked her in the eyes, and says, has no one condemned you? She said, no, no one, Lord. 
And then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Now that the accusers are gone, Jesus is the only one that remains that can condemn her. And as he approaches her, she's there in that moment holding her breath. She knows that she's worthy of being stoned. And Jesus is the only one there. Because he's the only one without sin. He's the only one that can make the absolute judgment. And while she holds her breath, Jesus approaches her, looks tenderly and compassionately into her eyes and doesn't pronounce a sentence of condemnation. Jesus looking into this woman's eyes may be the first time that this woman has ever seen a man look into her eyes and not want something from her. This woman has been used. This woman has been abused her whole life. And now Jesus, God in the flesh, stands before her with tender compassion. And he says, I don't condemn you. Though you're guilty, I don't condemn you. Jesus doesn't dismiss her sin or condemn or condone her sin. Because Jesus knows that in a little while, he's going to cross to pay for her sins. Justice will be served. Justice will be served through the person of Christ. Justice is always served through Christ. Remember just for a moment the reason that God sent Jesus. John chapter 3, a couple chapters before this, reminds us that Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's why Jesus is here. Jesus is doing the mighty work of what we could not do for ourselves, but he's stepping in and doing it for us. For in a moment, all the condemnation is gonna be placed on Christ through Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. Jesus is going to be our substitute, stand in the place and bear our sin, bear our shame, bear our penalty. See, Jesus is not only the only righteous judge, Jesus becomes the ultimate sacrifice, willingly give of his life on the cross. And an amazing exchange took place on the cross for the sins of the world were placed on Jesus and Jesus endured the wrath of God and Jesus died and rose again after three days, putting to death death and sin. And through Christ, because of his resurrection, we can have hope and we can have forgiveness of sins. Amen. The good news is the same forgiveness that the woman experienced on that day when she met Jesus is the same experience that you and I can have through Christ if we trust in him. I love what Isaiah chapter 53 verse five says. It says, but he being Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We all have turned, every one of us have turned to our own way. But the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. You and I deserve punishment. But Jesus endured all of that. That through him, there might now be no condemnation for those that are in Christ. If you're here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's your response. Come to him today and say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. 
I've been doing it all on my own. Now I trust in you as my Lord and Savior. Now third, we see as Jesus is dealing with sin, we see that forgiveness renews a dead life. Look with me in the second part of verse 11. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go from now and sin no more. You see, the words of Jesus now speak life back into the woman, right? The Bible reminds us of our desperate condition apart from Christ, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But Jesus tells this woman, now there's a call in your life to this abundant life, this life that you have just experienced, amazing grace, amazing mercy, that this forgiveness that you now have has given you a clean slate, She's no longer a slave to sin, but she now can walk in a way that glorifies God. And when Jesus tells the woman to go sin no more, he's not telling the woman to live a life of sinless perfection, but he's telling her that she is free today. She's gonna sin again, and when she does, she will be condemned. But Jesus here is telling the woman, don't return to the old ways. Instead, you've now been given this freedom. Now walk in a new way way now let's not get these in the wrong order Jesus doesn't didn't say to this woman go and sin no more and then be forgiven see that's how many of us respond like we feel like we've got to clean ourselves up we've got to do things in order to be made right before God and that's not the case this woman didn't do anything she just came to Jesus or was brought before Jesus and interacted with Jesus and Jesus gave her forgiveness and then because of the forgiveness, he called her to walk in holiness. Work doesn't come to earn grace. Grace comes and then obedience flows as a response to grace. If we shift shift the scene from a courtroom here to a hospital room, imagine for a moment you come into the the hospital room and the doctor says, hey, you've got lung cancer. All the years of your smoking, all the years of doing all of that have now finally caught up to you. And the doctor says, but there's good news. Though you've done all this, if you change in this moment, if you stop smoking, you have a chance at a longer life. How would you respond? Would you quit smoking? Well, statistics say that that's not the case. When people actually in this scenario, only 42% of smokers that were diagnosed with lung cancer stopped smoking. That means over 60% of people, or or just about 60% of people, when they get the diagnosis of lung cancer, get the diagnosis and they know their life's gonna end, and what happens? They just continue in their sin. They just continue smoking and smoking and smoking, and they're like, I don't care. I this, is, this addiction's too much. I can't overcome it. But 42% say, you know what? I need to make a life change. And they seek to make a change. Now, the difference between the smoker and the, Christ, or the one that comes to faith is that it doesn't come through your work. Right? But when you get the diagnosis that you're dying, change needs to happen. And the only way that you're going to change is by coming through Christ and coming to Christ. That power to stop smoking may rest inside of yourself, but the power to come to Christ doesn't rest in you. It rests in the work of Christ. So the foundation of the Christian faith is that belief in Jesus, we have to believe in the fact that Jesus forgives us of our sins, that we're no longer slave to sin. 
So today, I want to encourage you, be a recipient of that forgiveness. Come to Jesus and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. And then we can walk in holiness. Maybe today, your response is not just to receive the grace and forgiveness of God, but maybe you need to extend forgiveness. If you are a follower of Christ and you have been forgiven, then your unwillingness to forgive someone else in your life is just like cancer because it's killing you. It's not killing the other person. Your unforgiveness that's in your heart is killing you. And because Jesus has forgiven you, we have the power to forgive others. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words today. We thank you that they are true. And we thank you that you forgive sin. So that each one in this room, we know we're all guilty of violating your law. We all know in our own way we've rebelled against you and we are all desperately in need of forgiveness. So Father, I pray that in this moment we would all turn our eyes back to you. And if there's someone here that hasn't yet come to the place of trusting you as their Lord and Savior, I pray today would be that day. Allow them to see their guilt Allow them to know that in you there's no condemnation, but they have to come through you. So may they trust in you today. For those of us that are here that believe, Father, that I've come to faith in you, God, would you still continue to convict us of our sin, knowing that it doesn't stop us from being saved, but it hinders our relationship with you. So Father, may we seek forgiveness. And maybe there's someone here that's harboring unforgiveness in their hearts. May they come to the place today of laying that before you and allow them to extend forgiveness to the one that has harmed them. Now, Father, as we sing, continue to work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.